Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Partial Lab. This is Ami Silver, writer at Olive Beta. And this is Daniel Lowenstein, a fellow writer at Olive Beta. And just a quick reminder before we start, if you have not yet done so, please subscribe to Partial Lab and rate us five stars. Okay, so Daniel, we're going to be looking at Parshat Akiv together. Sounds good. Just want to let you know just some of the themes I've been paying attention to and noticed here. It's a bit of a tiul, a bit of a saunter through the entire Parsha. It seems to me that there are some themes that spread themselves out over different sections of this Parsha. So that's okay. I'll make sure to get my hiking boots on. (laughs) Okay, so uh, Akiv, right, means heel. So I want us to uh, stretch our heels as we're about (laughs) to dive into this material. So if you can, just open up to the very beginning of Parshat Ekev. We're in Devarim, Deuteronomy, chapter 7. Verse 12 there is where the Parsha opens. Daniel, I want you to just read the first couple of verses there and uh, give us a bit of a summary translation as you go. Okay, I mean, sounds good. So the Parsha starts, It will be if you listen to these commandments. And when I say if you listen, that's translating Ekev as uh, if or because of or on the heels of. Ami mentioned before, Ekev means heel. Not sure if you have any other way you want to translate that word or if we'll come back to it. Yeah, I think I think simply stated, as a consequence of you listening to these laws. Okay, so great. So as a consequence of listening to these these mishpatim, these laws, ushmartem vasitemotam, and you guard and do them. So then Hashem will in turn guard for you the covenant and the, the chesed, the graciousness uh, that he swore to your fathers. So he will love you and bless you and multiply you. And he will bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land your grains and your wine and your oil, the children of your various kinds of cattle, on the land that was sworn to your fathers to be given to you. Okay, great. So now on the surface of it, Daniel, it seems like Moshe is kind of setting out a pretty simple condition here. Children of Israel, if you listen to God's laws, God will bless you in turn and give you all these good things in the land that you're going to enter. But I want to ask you something because, right, we already kind of pointed out this word Ekev. It's a little unusual. And not only does Ekev appear only a couple different times in in the Chumash, but I'm wondering, can you think of any other text where we have Ekev Tishmu'un or something similar to Ekev listening to God? And similar kinds of promises of bracha, of blessing, of ribui, of increase, of children. Any of this uh, ring a bell for you, Daniel? It definitely rings a bell. I even vaguely have this uh, this verse in my head of Ekev Esher Shamata Bekoli. Okay, yeah. Which I think means uh, by virtue of the fact that you listen to my voice, but mm-hmm. I could not tell you where it is. Okay, so Daniel, I think you probably have a trace of those words ringing in your head because you actually say those verses pretty regularly. Uh, There's a portion of biblical text that's part of the daily morning prayers, kind of at the very beginning of the morning prayers. Are any of these hints coming together for you, Daniel? Oh, is it in the story of the binding of Isaac of the Akedah? Is in the Akedah. Those words are actually towards the very end of binding Mm, of Isaac. Right. When when the angel, as a representative of God, promises Abraham lots of blessings and children in response, or, you know, Akev, what he did by offering Isaac. Akev asher shemata bekoli. So, 
I want to glance with you to those verses. It's in Breshi, Genesis chapter 22. That's where the story of the binding of Isaac takes place. And let's just jump right towards the end there to verse 18. All the nations of the land will be blessed through your offspring. As a consequence of, on the heels of, the fact that you listen to my voice. Now, that's kind of cute, Akev and listening to God. But let's go up one more verse there, or rather back one more verse to verse 17. What else did God's angel promise Avram? I will surely bless you. And I will doubly increase or surely increase your offspring like the stars of the heavens. Here too, these words of Baracha and Ribui. Let's go back to the beginning of Akev. Uveracha vihirbecha. Right. right, so it's kind of a it's it's in the opposite order, but at the very beginning of Parshat Akev, we have Akev listening to God. We have Berachacha. We have Hirbecha, and specifically this this language of Hirbecha, which means I will increase you. The ne- very next line is about children. Verach pribitnecha. I'm going to give you a blessing in the fruit of your your womb. I'm going to give you many children. Right, it's almost as though the uh, verses in Devarim are uh, referring to this promise that God made to Avraham mm-hmm. when they're saying that God will bless you and uh, multiply you just like the covenant that I made with your forefathers. Maybe this is just what he's referring to. Exactly, right? Because there seems to be even an, a more explicit hint there where Moshe is saying, God is going to guard for you the covenant and the kindness that he promised, that he swore lavotecha to your ancestors. Now, maybe... This is one of the places where God basically made that promise. He made that promise to Abraham after the binding of Isaac. But the thing is, it doesn't end there. Because if we go back to the Akedah, back to that blessing, the promise of children, there's another thing that God promises Abraham. V'yirash zar'acha et sha'ar oivav. Daniel, can you translate that to me? V'yirash zar'acha et sha'ar oivav. Sure, your children will inherit the gates of their enemies. So actually, actually, Daniel, this this thing of inheriting the gates of your enemies, maybe it sounds a little cryptic over there with, with Abraham, but the thing is we kind of see traces of that same language as we continue reading on in Dvarim chapter 7. I'm going to skip ahead a couple verses to verse 17, where Moshe just left off was telling the people that all these blessings are going to happen to you upon the land that God promised to your forefathers. Now, a few verses later, Moshe says, You might say in your heart, Oh, these nations on that land, they're so much greater than me. There's so many more of them. How could I possibly be able to inherit them? So you see, we, we have again this, this language of vayirash, of inheriting here the land, basically, of your enemies. Moshe then goes on to basically say, don't fear them. Just as God redeemed you from Egypt, just as God has done amazing wonders to you, so too God is going to help you overcome all of those other nations that you're afraid of. Right. Just like God promised to Abraham at the end of the story of the Akedah that he his children would inherit the gates of their enemies, so too we're seeing that same promise reemerge that the children of Israel will inherit. The implication is uh, the seven nations in Canaan would be their enemies, mm-hmm. and that no one should worry about it because you know we know God can do that kind of thing because we saw what happened in Egypt. Right. So I'm just kind of postulating here that it could be that for some reason Moshe is choosing to use the language of that promise to Abraham at the end of the Akedah in order to set up the kind of conditions that that the children of Israel can expect to face as they enter the land now. What do you mean by conditions? Well, vihaya ekiv tishmeun is actually an inverse of what happened with Avraham, right? With Avraham, it's ekiv asher shamat bekoli. All this is going to happen because you have already listened to my voice. 
when Moshe sets it out before the children of Israel, it's in the future. This will happen as a consequence of you listening to God in the future. Interesting. So if I'm following the logic here, it sounds like even though God promised to Abraham already that his children would inherit the gates of their enemies and uh, have bracha and have ribui because of what Abraham mm-hmm. did, there still seems to be a step or condition necessary for that bracha to come to fruition, pun intended, <laughs> for B'nai Israel. That there's something that they need to do and akev that, these bracha will happen. Right. So it's very interesting that you're phrasing it that way, Daniel. And, and I guess let's leave that as an open question. How much of this is a unconditional promise? And how much of this maybe is inviting the children of Israel to enter into the same kind of Akedah-like stance or Abraham-like engagement with God that maybe will be the cause of them receiving all this blessing? I want to leave that as an open question we can we can bring up as we continue to explore here. Sounds good. So I want to continue. I told you we're going to take a little bit of a hike, a journey through this parsha. I want to jump ahead now in Akev to the next chapter, chapter 8. We actually see another element Another echo of the Akedah kind of enter in here to Moshe's speech to the children of Israel. Come with me to chapter 8, verse 2. Uh, why don't you read that out, Daniel? And, uh, and again, just give us some surface-level translation summary here. You got it, Ami. Verse 2 says, So recall all of this path or journey that God led you on. These 40 years in the desert. For the purpose of afflicting you, to test you, to know what is in your heart, if you will follow his commands or not. Okay, so now, before we get into anything here, do you see any other Akeda echoes in, in that verse? Well, the idea of affliction and testing certainly feels Akeda-ish. So affliction and testing, can you tell us a bit more what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I would imagine that for Abraham, on one level, his experience was one of being tested. I think that's the one that we think about the most, but I'm sure his experience was also one of great pain and affliction. Or I shouldn't say I'm sure. I'm not actually sure. I don't know. But I would imagine that that would probably be present in some degree in his experience of having to face the prospect of sacrificing his only son. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting is we're kind of used to this language of Abraham being tested, right? Like the rabbis talk about Abraham was tested 10 times. It's like a big theme we know about Abraham. But actually here at the Akedah is, if I'm not mistaken, I think the only time where the text is very explicit about that, right? Let's look at the very first verse there in chapter 22 of Reshit. Vayhi achar dvarim came to be after these events. Vahalokim nisa et Avraham. And God tested Avraham, right? We have an explicit nisayon, just as Moshe is telling the people here, God walked you through the desert for 40 years, l'nasotcha, to test you. So we have this test at the Akedah. And on one hand, yeah, it's very simple. What was this test about? Is Abraham willing to sacrifice his child to God or not? That is a pretty big test, I would think. But what's interesting is towards the end of the Parshat HaAkedah, towards the end of this whole story, the binding of Isaac, there seems to be another articulation of what that test proved. What did Abraham prove through his actions here? Let's jump to verse 12, where the angel says, Vayomer al tishlach yadchal hanar. Right, Avraham, don't send your hand out against the youth. Ve'al ta'as lo muma, do nothing to him. Ki ata yadati ki yirei elokim ata. Because now I know that you are fearful of God and you did not withhold your child, your only one, from me. So it seems to add something, right? It's not just the end game of the test is, are you going to give the child up or not? That itself is part of another test. What does Abraham need to prove here? 
Do you have fear of God or not? If you're willing to give your child to me, oh, now I see you've really proven yourself that you're fearful of God. But if you continue to withhold your child from me, it seems that that Abraham would have failed that test. That the test was not only about Isaac being brought up the mountain or not. The test was about what that, that symbolized. Sort of meant to be an indicator or a symbol of something deeper, which is Abraham's fear of God. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Ami, are you going to suggest that that was the same thing being referred to in chapter 8 in Deuteronomy? Well, let's take a look. What does Moshe say? Lunasotra. You were tested in the desert. What was the outcome of that test? I don't know if we're told the outcome, but the, the purpose at least was mm-hmm. which means whether or not you will follow his commands, which I guess on the surface is similar to the idea of being mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily the same thing, right? right. feels more like a question of the actions you do mm-hmm. and feels something more like your inner self mm-hmm. and your commitments and allegiances. But at the same time, it does say in uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Exactly. It's not just about what you do, but it's about the motivations or the mindset you have that leads to your actions. Right. So the truth is both in the Akedah and in Parshat Ekev, even though the language isn't identical, we have God testing Abraham slash the Jewish people to discover what is in your heart and what are your actions. Or rather, how does your inner state and your outer action align with one another? Okay, that's cool. I mean, I do have a question, though. The question is about the order, mm-hmm. right? Because we mentioned that um, in the case of Abraham, Abraham was given his test and he passed his test. And then he was given his promise of you'll get all these wonderful things, right? right. And we mentioned that in uh, the beginning of Parshat Ekev, it seems to be saying you will get all these blessings if in the future you do all of these uh things that you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And yet over here in chapter 8 in Deuteronomy, later on in Parshat Akev, we talk about the fact that God for the last 40 years had been testing them in a similar way to the way God was testing Abraham at the Akedah. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like the test already happened. So Daniel, that's a really good question. And I feel like I don't have a comprehensive answer for you. But one thing that I already want to float here and an idea I think we'll come back to as we continue on is what if the Akeda itself wasn't just this one-time test, this one-time achievement, but somehow set into motion a kind of paradigm that Abraham's children are going to have to revisit time and time again as they continue on in their journey and continue in their relationship with God. I mean, that's an interesting idea. I have to say, right off the bat, it's sort of a little bit of a head-scratcher because I sort of feel like what's the point of making a promise to someone who passes a test about what's going to happen to his children Mm -hmm. if his children have to pass the same test all over again? Mm -hmm. But I want to see where you're going with this. Okay, great. And Daniel, I totally agree with you on one level. It wouldn't really make sense that the test was passed, but not quite passed. But let's just see what the text seems to show us here in the, in Parshadekev as we go on. All right. I want to just jump ahead a few more a few more verses now, again in chapter 8, to another language of that affliction and the test that the children of Israel went through in the desert. Here I'm talking about verse 16, and we're talking specifically about the man, the manna. So Moshe goes on, man bamibar. God fed you manna in the desert. Your ancestors never knew this kind of food. Once again, to afflict you and to test you. To benefit you in your end. Interesting. Again, that idea of that the tests are there for the purpose of giving you some sort of benefit. Mm-hmm. That passing a test isn't just because God is a mean fifth grade teacher who wants to prove how wrong you are. 
there's some kind right. of benefit that's that's embedded there in the test for you. So, and comparing that to the idea of atai adati kirei or to know what's in your heart, right? So there's a, a purpose to the test for God, but it's not just to satisfy God's curiosity uh, and have us be guinea pigs, right? There's also something in it for us. Mm-hmm. So now let's read these next verses. Marta bilvavecha. You might say in your heart, My strength and the power of my hand made all of this might that I have. I mean, what might is that talking about? Okay, good. So we actually skipped over the, the verses in between. The chayul, the might that you have, has to do with the children of Israel eventually entering the land, settling it, building these big homes, eating all their food, having all this yield and produce, and in a sense, forgetting that God fed them miraculously for 40 years without them doing a thing. So this chayil, this self-made success, is the illusion that we might fall into once we enter the land and forget about the desert experience. So now look at what the next verse says. Why is it so important to remember the test of the desert? God, you shall remember Hashem your God, because he is the one who gives you strength to perform all of this might. In order to uphold his covenant that he promised to your forefathers this very day. Now, on the one hand, locally, we're talking about why is it important for the children of Israel to continue to remember God when they settle the land and kind of build their own society, reality, etc. But what's interesting to me here is that I think we have another sort of thematic parallel to part of what Abraham faced in Akedat Yitzchak in the Bainim of Isaac. And that parallel is the following. What really is the test here that we're talking about when you enter the land? I feel like I might be losing track of things a little bit. So first we notice that the children of Israel will be eligible for all these great blessings if they listen to the commandments. Mm -hmm. Then we said that they were already tested in the desert. Mm -hmm. Now are we saying that the blessings they get in the land are a test and not just a reward? So it sounds to me like what we're seeing here is that the children of Israel were tested in the desert. Their test was, God's going to give you this food from heaven. How are you going to relate to that God-given gift? And it seems like the lesson of that test is going to come back and become relevant once again once they enter the land. God's going to be giving you this land. You're going to build it. You're going to work the land. You're going to receive all of its yield and produce and have these great big homes. And the question is, are you going to remember where that came from? In my mind, this is actually pretty resonant with the test that Abraham faced at the Akeda. God gave you a child. How are you going to relate to that gift you were given to God? Can you receive God's gift? Can it be your child and you also still recognize that this child is God's? Interesting, Ami. So it sounds like what you're saying is the blessings we're going to get are a result of guarding Atamishbatim Ha'ila, the uh, cryptic reference to the laws we get in the beginning of the Parsha. On the other hand, we also have this whole parallel to the Avraham story with the word Lenasotcha about the Israelites being tested in the desert. And there in that test, that test seemed to be about whether the Israelites could recognize that the great things that they have come from God, and passing that test could lead to all the blessings, just like Avraham had to recognize in some way that the good things that he had, meaning his son, also came from God, and that was what would lead to the blessings. Yeah, and what's kind of crazy about all this is it seems like each test that's passed produces another blessing. And then once we receive that blessing, we're going to have to face a similar kind of test. 
Can we recognize that that blessing is also coming from God? Or do we then forget where it came from and kind of just take it for granted that that's what we've been given? So it's like we sort of earn the reward, but also have to acknowledge that we didn't earn the reward. (laughs) Something like that. But even the reward that we earn is still something we need to attribute as coming from God. Yes, something along those lines. This is kind of what what I meant when I said, could it be that the children of Abraham had to somehow follow in Abraham's footsteps? No pun intended to his a cave. You know, (laughs) Abraham walked a certain walk. He received a certain reward. Maybe we need to continue to walk that walk even as we reap the benefits of that reward. And I want to add one more line here to the mix that's in the very end of this verse here in Akev. Laman hakim et brito asher in order to uphold yeah, I was hoping covenant. we were going to come back to that because I didn't really know what that meant. So what, you're asking what does it mean, Daniel? Well, not literally. I mean, I mean well, the literal translation, I know it means that uh, in order that he can fulfill his covenant that he made to your forefathers. Mm-hmm. I just sort of wasn't sure why remembering the fact that God is the one who gives you koach would somehow be a prerequisite to God being able to fulfill his covenant. Mm-hmm. Well, it might be a condition. Right. As long as you remember that your gifts are coming from God, this is going to enable God to continue to uphold that covenant with you. You know, Ami, I guess now the more we're talking about it, it sort of makes sense, right? Because, you know, if you have a student who crams for a test and gets every question right, but can't tell you a thing about the material the next day, maybe technically they passed the test, but in all the meaningful ways, they didn't really pass the test. Hmm. And and I guess you could say something similar that if somehow the test of the Akeda, you know, if all the tests we're hearing about now are really tests about recognizing God and being willing to admit that all of the good things you have in your life really come from him, well, then if you get rewarded for that and then you don't acknowledge that the reward came from God, then you didn't really acknowledge that good things came from God in the first place. Hmm. It's a self-reinforcing test, sort of. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, that test is going to last the span of generations. And it's the same test, right? It's the same test that Abraham faced. It's not a repeat It's Abraham's test is going to play itself out through his generations. And just to make that point even stronger, those words, we see those same words in God's commandment to Abraham about the circumcision and specifically about creating a covenant with Yitzchak and through all of his offspring and generations. I mean, this is all really, really cool. Right? It's almost as if through all these subtle hints, all this subtle messaging, Moshe is telling the people that those tests that their forefathers and ancestors went through, it wasn't just something that happened in the past. They're going to have to keep on reliving and re-experiencing those same kind of stories. And what's even cooler, Moshe is also telling us this as readers of the Bible, that somehow continue to play themselves out in our relationship with God in an ongoing way. So remember, I promised you that we would be taking a, a hike of sorts through the Parsha. I want to just roadmap with you where the rest of the Parsha is going. Because starting in chapter 9, right after these verses and through the next couple of chapters, Moshe starts to talk about things that are sort of the inverse of all this language of having kept God's command and listening to God's word. What I'm referring to is a kind of drawn out discussion of the sin of the golden calf and of all of the other kind of failures and complaints that the children of Israel launched against God through their 40 years in the desert. Interesting. So something that I just kind of want to posit here is if the opening chapters are talking about these sort of proto akeda like tests that the children of Israel faced in the desert, that they maybe succeeded in passing, and they may face again in the future, I think what Moshe is talking about in this next part of the Parsha might be the places where they actually failed in those tests. And before we look at texts together, I just want to point out some kind of overarching thematic parallels here. 
Now, besides for the Akeda, Daniel, where else can you think of a mountain with a fire, with olot, these sort of raised, elevated offerings, with the chosen place where God wants to meet with his children, the chosen mountain where God wants to meet with his children? What are those two mountains? So it sounds like you're referring to uh, Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai and Mount Moriah, where the Akeda happened, right? Right. So I want to just look at a verse, not here in Devarim, but back in the book of Exodus, in Shemot chapter 32, where the Cheta Egel, the sin of the golden calf, actually took place. And now when I saw this verse, it kind of just blew my mind as far as, again, this sort of inverse Akeda story. I want you to look with me at the beginning of chapter 32 in Shemot. I'm just going to paraphrase to start us off. The people see that Moshe is, is late in returning from the mountain, right? So they all come to Aaron. They say, come Aaron, make a new God for us, etc., etc. They make this golden calf. And now I'm just going to read to you one verse. Chapter 32, verse 6. This is what happens right after they build the calf and Aaron announces to everyone, Chag Hashem Machar, we're going to have this great celebration for God tomorrow. What happens that next day? Vayashkimu mimocharat. And they wake up the next day. Vayaalu olot. And they bring an ola offering, an elevated offering. Vayigshu shlamim, and peace offerings. Vayeshev ha'am le'echol b'shato, vayakumu l'tzachek. The nation sits down to eat and drink, and they get up l'tzachek, to revel, to laugh, to play. Wow, Ami, this is really, really interesting. These are all words that are part of the Akeda story. Isn't that crazy? It's really crazy. Avraham waking up early, mm-hmm. baboker, mm-hmm. and he's instructed to bring Yitzchak as uh, as an ola. Mm-hmm. And there you have vayalu olod and the word litzachik. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's litzachik? Sounds like it's a reference to Yitzchak. Right. They get up to Yitzchak. Vayakumu <laughs> litzachik to laugh. So, Ami, it almost sounds like there are all of the potential elements of an Akeda here, and yet it all goes terribly wrong. Right. And, you know, we don't really have have the time here to go so deeply into all these texts and explore this more at length. But I want to just kind of posit a theory there. Maybe our listeners can explore this a little further. But it almost seems to me that we have the prototype of the Akeda, which is God's calling you to a mountain and asking you, are you willing to devote yourself to God or not? If you're willing to devote yourself, to prove your devotion, then there's all these blessings, this covenant that a God is going to uphold with you and the next generations, that you're going to be part of this great unfolding of the promise of land, the promise of prosperity, the promise of relationship with God. But if you face that moment, that test where you're asked to prove your devotion, and instead of giving of yourself to God, you somehow withhold yourself from God, disaster kind of ensues from that. There's a total breakdown in that relationship. That's what happened at the Cheta Egel, right? Remember, Cheta Egel, the golden calf, in some level, it's their response to receiving the Torah at Har Sinai. God put himself out there to them and invited them into this amazing relationship. And what came of it is this inverse Akeda, is, no, we're not willing to really give ourselves to you. What's interesting is that I don't know that we necessarily see the Israelites withholding from God but you do see them giving of themselves to this idol instead, right? Mm-hmm. They take off their gold and their jewels, and they're willing to give. They're just not willing to give to the right God. Mm-hmm. And it's like all the elements are there, right? The early waking, the olot, the tzchok, that laughter. But I guess the piece of withholding here is they're using it in some sense for themselves, right? They get up litzachik. Avraham gave Yitzchak, gave that child of laughter, that fulfilled promise. He gave that back to God. And from there came all of this blessing. From there came all of that sign of his dedication. But here, the children of Israel are showing as if they're giving of themselves to something. 
But that tzchok, that laughter is something they're just keeping to themselves. They're using it for their own revelry, their own eating and drinking and celebration. It doesn't really have anything to do with their relationship to the God who's giving them the Torah. So we're basically seeing another echo of this pattern of being presented with a test, you know, and potential blessings following from it. But this case, like you're saying, is a case of failure, of squandering the opportunity to show devotion to God. Exactly. So now just coming back to Parshat Ekev, I get the sense that Moshe setting up the stories in this way, right? The story of what's going to happen when you enter the land, the story of what happened in the desert, the story of what happened at Mount Sinai, in a sense... The whole Parsha here is weaving in and out of the Akedah story, showing the people there's times when you failed the test of the Akedah, there's times when you met the test of the Akedah, and there's going to be times when that same test is going to face you. And the question is going to be, are you going to live up to what you really need to be doing when you enter the land? Are you going to be able to receive God's blessings and keep looking heavenward, keep seeing God in your life, keep seeing that what you have in your land, in your home, in your field, is a continued blessing from God and is part of that ongoing covenant and relationship. You know, if the paradigm of uh, this ongoing pattern of tests is uh, the Akeda, feels like a pretty high bar. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know if most of us are going to be experiencing a test of, you know, that magnitude uh, in our own lives. I sure hope not. Um, but I think I can relate to the the temptation to be complacent when your life feels like it's full and it feels like it's full of blessing to enjoy it and, let's say, forget to reinvest all the blessings you get back into your relationship with God mm-hmm. and just sort of look at it as a reward and say, you know, you sort of passed, mm-hmm. right? There's There's something gratifying about passing a test and feeling like you're done. Mm-hmm. But that's not how life works, right? Life is constant work and constant attempts at growth. And you really do need a good pair of uh, hiking shoes. <laughs> Definitely. And what's kind of interesting to me, just if we return again to that opening verse, This is all going to happen if you keep these laws, you guard and continue to perform God's commands. On some level, it seems to me like Moshe is giving this broad, general definition of what is the purpose of the mitzvot. Why do we have all these laws? What are all these things really about? It's really all about continuing to recognize God, continuing in all these different ways to invest yourself in that relationship and keep God at the focal point in your life amidst all of the other things that are going on, amidst all of the worldly life that you're building. You continue to bring God into those experiences. And in that sense, you get to live in a real covenant, in a real relationship. So, Daniel, thank you so much for exploring these ideas with me. It's really exciting to me. It feels like the beginning of a lot more exploration. And listeners, please send us your comments and questions to info at alephbeta.org. You have no idea how much it means to us to hear back from you. So we're really looking forward to what you have to say. And once again, remember to subscribe to Partial Lab and give us a five-star rating. Have a great week.